0: I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. Coming up, we talk with astronomer Dr. Emily Levesque about her book, The Last Stargazers, an enduring story of astronomy's vanishing explorers. Dr. Levesque provides a peek into the life of an observational astronomer, the story of the people who see beyond the stars. For millennia, humans have gazed up at night in wonder and amazement, creating stories about the mysteries of those beautiful and sometimes surprising glowing occupants of the sky, and using them to track the seasons. Astronomy is considered the oldest science, with records of astronomical measurements made in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago, and even 2,000 years before that. Nomadic people living on the African savannah at a place called Napta Playa created what is possibly Earth's oldest astronomical observatory and calendar, a circle of stones long before Stonehenge that might have been used to track the timing of summer solstice and the arrival of monsoons. The sky that we see today has not changed that much since then, but how we look at the sky has changed. Although many of us still look up like our ancestors did in awe and inspired by the night sky, the modern scientific study of the sky is done by astronomers with some of the most complex scientific instruments ever created. So, who are these people whose job it is to study the universe and try to unravel its mysteries? That is the world that Dr. Emily Levesque shares with us in her book, The Last Stargazers, The Enduring Story of Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers. Dr. Levesque is a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. Her research is focused on understanding how the most massive stars in the universe evolve and die. She has observed on many of the planet's largest telescopes and flown over the Antarctic stratosphere in an experimental aircraft for her research. Dr. Levesque will be giving a talk about her book and astronomical experiences this Friday, April 8th, at 7 p.m. at Fisk Planetarium on the University of Colorado Boulder campus. Dr. Levesque, joins us now on How on Earth to talk about what it is like to be a professional astronomer and some of the stories from these sometimes nomadic scientists.
1: So I can share the story of how I've become an astronomer. Um, When I interviewed all of my colleagues for the book, so many people told me their origin stories, and I was really struck by how different they all were. There were people like me who were in love with space from the time they were tiny and people who came to it late, people who went to a planetarium show for the first time and were mesmerized, or took a class in college and just never looked back. But in my case, I really got interested as a very small child. When I was two years old, Halley's Comet made its most recent close flyby of Earth. Hmm. And my big brother, Ben, had to observe this comet for a school project. So our whole family went out into our backyard in Southern New England. And apparently I was the standard fussy, tired two-year-old who was afraid of the dark and just wanted nothing to do with this until they pointed me up. And apparently I was just fascinated by the night sky. And from then on, People would ask what I wanted to be when I grew up. And the answer was, well, I want to be a ballerina or an astronomer or Hmm. a firefighter or an astronomer or later a marine biologist or an astronomer. (laughs) And astronomer just always stuck. And the trick I went into growing up was that I knew I loved space. I had a family who loved science and really loved the pursuit of knowledge, but I didn't know any professional scientists. I didn't know professional astronomers. I had no idea what that job would entail all day. Hmm. So when I got to college, I majored in physics and it was a huge shock because I'd really never taken any physics before. And I got this sort of crash course in what the world of astronomy was actually going to be like and wound up loving it. But it was an interesting journey from loving science to finding out what scientists did all day. And that behind the scenes look at what the job is actually like is what I try to get across in The Last Stargazers.
0: That comment about what scientists really do all day or what astronomers really do all day, a lot of people think strange things about what astronomers do for a living. And and there are two types of astronomers. Well, there are many, but you know, there's theoretical or observational. Your book focuses a lot on the observational astronomers. So what does an observational astronomer actually do?
1: I love exploring exactly what we do in the book because there's a really wide mix of experiences or day-to-day lives that observational astronomers can have. And that surprises people because I think they assume we're all just, you know, nocturnal creatures who sit at a telescope every night and look through it with our eyes and wait for something to happen. Mm -hmm. And in reality, we do use telescopes, some of the most exquisite telescopes on the planet, but these telescopes are out in the darkest, most remote places we can get them to. And we will spend time thinking up a scientific plan for how we want to use a precious resource like a world class telescope. We'll apply for time like other scientists apply for grant money. If we're lucky enough to be given time, we'll be assigned a night. And we plan ahead for that night. We travel to where the telescope is oftentimes. And if it's cloudy that night or the telescope's broken that night, you're just out of luck because the next night belongs to someone else. So we may go to a telescope for just another two and then spend months analyzing the data that we get. And that data, the light that we're gathering from stars, which in most cases in astronomy is all we get, is what propels all of our research and what we use to answer all of our scientific questions. So there's time at a telescope, but there's a lot of preparation and follow-up too.
0: And what you just described is what you mentioned in the book is classical observing, where someone actually goes to the telescope on the mountain. But you mentioned that there are Other types of observing, for example, remote observing. So what is that compared to classical observing?
1: So remote observing is where you do pick out a telescope, design a scientific project, propose for it and maybe get assigned time, but instead of flying to and driving to and trekking to the telescope, you operate it via a remote workstation or even your laptop. I've run a telescope in New Mexico from my cousin's kitchen table in New York City through my laptop. And this type of observing used to be rarer. When I wrote the book, there were a few observatories that primarily operated this way, but many others where you could only run the telescope by going to the mountain itself. And that was actually a very interesting shift during the pandemic that we got very good at remote or pseudo remote operations so that science could keep going while keeping the people who work at observatories safe. But it's a different experience because you might be on a really different time zone. You Mm -hmm. don't get to go stay at an observatory and sleep on a nocturnal schedule. I have colleagues that run a telescope all night. And then instead of getting to sleep, they have to get their kids off to school. So there's pros and cons to that model for sure.
0: Right, the classical observing forces you to be immersed in what you're doing and remote observing real life intervenes.
1: <laughs> real life intervenes. It also it also makes an observing trip much quicker. I can jump mm-hmm. to New Mexico and back in a night. And it can sometimes make astronomy more accessible, but there's there's trade-offs.
0: You mentioned in your book that your family asked, "Did you discover anything last night?" Is that something you get a lot in? What is classical observing like? Do you actually say, Eureka, when you're at the telescope?
1: This is a question that a lot of people ask me when I tell them I'm an astronomer. They'll say, well, what happened in the sky last night? Or did you discover anything new? And it, again, feeds into this very reasonable, I think, expectation that astronomers probably wait at a telescope until something cool happens. And in reality, when I'm spending a night at a telescope, I typically have a list saying, I want to point to these 15 stars and I want to get exactly this type of data because by observing that star, I'll be able to measure this element in that star's atmosphere, which I need to know about to answer this question about how stars work. And I will have a very detailed scientific plan. And if the night goes well, there are no surprises. Um, The night very often does not go well. And some of the surprises (laughs) are frustrating, But I I have talked to colleagues who have been present at observatories when really exciting things happened. They've caught a supernova or they've been in the hunt for new asteroids or something like that and discovered something really surprising right here in our own solar system. So the surprises are fun when they come. I've certainly gotten surprised at telescopes looking even at the chemistry of stars and seeing something strange. But at the time, looking at the data, we almost never go, ha, Eureka, I've discovered something amazing. (laughs) The sound, the most exciting sound in science is usually, huh, that's weird. (laughs) And sort of double checking to make you didn't screw anything up and taking an observation again to make sure what you're seeing is real and kind of raising one eyebrow and going, what exactly is going on? And usually the answer becomes a really exciting discovery, but it's this wonderful, slow realization that you found something cool.
0: Also, one thing you mentioned just reminded me of a line you said in the book that a misconception about astronomers, we are absolutely terrible at finding things in the night sky on our own.
1: Yes. And to be fair, there are some professional astronomers who are very good at this. They tend to be teaching astronomy 101 courses or teaching lab courses or have come to the field through being dedicated hobbyists. But a lot of us are very used to the modern day telescopes doing a lot of the work for us. Most of the things that I study with the telescope you can't even see with the naked eye. So I rely on the computers of a telescope and the very detailed calculations being done to go to a very particular set of coordinates to get me where I'm going. And if you were to take me outside and say point at exactly what you were observing, maybe I could get a little close but I certainly couldn't pinpoint it. And I don't have every star and every constellation memorized. I know this dislikes people sometimes because they'll point at the sky and say, what planet is that? And I find myself going, "Uh, Jupiter, probably, or (laughs) relying on a very handy app on my phone that helps label things in the night sky, simply because the kind of astronomy that I do and a lot of my colleagues do is very different from the stargazing that really gives you an encyclopedic knowledge of the night sky. I do have my favorite constellations and stars and things that I recognize in the night sky, but I think some people imagine we keep catalogs in our heads and we keep the catalogs mm-hmm. on computers now.
0: I outsource everything I know onto my computer. You mention a quote, I think from Mike Brown that it's the most exciting, boring job in the world.
1: Yes, as he specified when the job is going well, It's the most exciting, boring job in the world. When everything's going well, the telescope's working perfectly, the sky is clear, you go down your list and you observe the first star and the second star and everything is nice and smooth. And as soon as one of those things stops being true, the boring goes away for sure. And whether it's exciting or frustrating or exhausting, the night changes. But hope for a night where things go according to plan and the excitement comes from the data and the science that you got.
0: And sometimes you must sit there and ponder exactly what it is that you're doing sitting in that little room, just the impact of what you are actually doing and looking at. Does that sometimes just shock you in the middle of the night?
1: It it really does. It's not something that you ever entirely get immune to. I think think any astronomer at some point is sitting in the control room of this building-sized telescope and is thinking, I'm pointing a piece of glass that's, you know, 27 feet across, one of the largest pieces of glass in the world. I'm pointing it at the sky. It's collecting little crumbs of light from a star that's being eaten by a black hole how many countless light years away. And based on that light, I'm going to explain the physics of how stars work as long as The telescope shutter doesn't break, ladybugs don't crawl into the detector, or an ill-timed earthquake doesn't show up. And the contrast between the big questions we're trying to answer and the things that can sort of befall observing runs are always sort of absurd. And anybody will get tired during the night. You might be amazed at the romance of the night at 10 p.m., And by four in the morning, maybe the beauty has worn off. It's going two more hours until I can get to bed. But you never fully forget the strange enormity of what you're doing.
0: And that's just the data collection part of the fun. You mentioned that first you have to pose and hope you get time on the telescope. That's not always a given. But then you're lucky. You get to go to the telescope. You hope that it's clear. That's not always a given. And then you collect your data. But then... What do you do after you have finished your observing run?
1: That's where a lot of the really exciting science happens, and that's meticulous in its own way. So the first thing we do is we make sure that the data is of a good enough quality that we can answer the scientific questions we want to. And if we've planned our observations well, the data has come out in great shape, but we still have to do what we call reducing. The data and it's what it sounds like. It's The analogy I use in the book is like unearthing a dinosaur bone and slowly scraping away sand and rock and other contaminants to make sure that what's left is truly the bone. So we peel away background starlight, the light of the moon, anything else that could possibly confuse the scientific signal that we want to detect. And then once we have that signal, we apply all the physics education that we have, all the astronomy education, to figure out what type of star or galaxy we're looking at, what sort of chemical signatures we might be seeing, what even something as simple sounding as the color of an object, can tell us, which can be very complicated. So a lot of the analysis is where we start to connect the observations that we've taken to the questions we're trying to answer. And that can be a really challenging part of the science on its own. And then if you have found something interesting, you go through the whole process of writing and publishing a scientific paper, which is an entirely separate process. (laughs) So it's a long journey from proposing for the telescope, going to the telescope, coming back from the telescope with data to a scientific result.
0: A scientist really has to be able to do so many different things. They have to come up with ideas, figure out how to come up with a question, how to get the answer, get the answer, and then write the paper, like you said, in a way that gets through the peer review process. So it really is a Jack and Jill of all trades.
1: It is. And it's it's one of the reasons that collaborative science is so powerful, because Everything that you just described is a daunting task for somebody to do by themselves. but working with collaborators who are experts on how a telescope works or exactly how a camera in a telescope will behave and can help you refine your scientific questions. All of that makes your research idea better. And even when you mentioned the peer review process, having reviewers that can really dig into your paper and make sure you've done everything carefully. I mean, that's it's the backbone of how science works and working with collaborators and colleagues who can help their expertise and make the science better is just crucial to the work that
0: we do. Thinking of all the different skills that you had to develop to be a successful astronomer, is there one that you never thought you would have to be good at to be an astronomer?
1: It's funny because I'm not sure it surprised me, but I know it surprises a lot of people. Scientists have to be really good communicators. Um, And especially we have to be good writers in order to propose a scientific idea to colleagues that they deem worth giving telescope time or money. We need to describe the results of what we found very well. Einstein never would have gotten famous if he hadn't explained general relativity clearly and well to colleagues who had no idea what this wacky idea was. (laughs) And then even talking to funding agencies, talking to the public whose tax dollars support what we do, it's so important to be clear on what we're doing, why it matters, why it's worth investing in, why it's worth supporting. So scientists I know are often thought of as people who think in numbers and really don't know how to connect with sort of people in their day-to-day life. And in reality, being a good communicator is a crucial part of being a good scientist because we have to communicate with each other and we have to communicate with the folks
0: who support the
1: science itself.
0: Yeah. I've always felt that scientists as part of the requirement for the major should either take a speech communication or theater class.
1: Mm -hmm. I was a theater kid in high school and it has to this day been some pretty valuable professional preparation.
0: Going back to the observatories and observing runs, you've mentioned how observing is this combination of high and low tech from state-of-the-art instruments and technology to, as you say, here, sit on this crate balanced on the wobbly board. I really like that description, but what are some of the differences that you've seen between what is really state-of-the-art and yet some MacGyver-esque need to make things work?
1: I think this contrast is probably familiar to anybody that's ever dealt with a complicated project at work or dealt with trying to do something difficult with sufficient, but not infinite resources. So, I mean, telescopes are engineered to have literal hairs width precision. In their mirrors. Their mirrors are optically perfect so that they can gather and focus light as well as possible. And they're in these giant building-sized moving structures that can point very precisely to all over the night sky. So they're engineered wonderfully. But at the same time, when something stops working, I definitely have colleagues that'll pull the end, just hit it with a wrench right there and hope that fixes it. And for a lot of telescopes, you don't necessarily have immediate access to a spare part, or you might have something malfunctioned and not want to wait five hours, five precious hours in a dark night to get a solution. So I talked to people who were, you know, fashioning telescopes out of scotch tape and a couple razor blades, or who were cutting out a big piece of cardboard and saying, now, if we position this over the mirror, just so it'll be like the mirror smaller. The best analogy that I heard somebody give me for working at a mountaintop telescope was that it's sort of like a garage band, that you have extraordinarily skilled musicians, maybe, and people putting on an amazing concert that comes out great, but behind the scenes, somebody's taping some wires together and, you know, frantically trying to fix a microphone on the fly. And there's sort of a ragtag group of people making it work. And this will happen a lot of times, observatories, even observatories that are extremely well supported and funded simply because there's so many little things that can go wrong and you kind of count on human ingenuity to come up with an ad hoc solution <laughs> when it needs to be done.
0: You mentioned the telescopes being in, you know, these remote places and having to be very... Um clever sometimes at making things work in the middle of the night with minimal resources and you liken it to a garage band. But there are other types of telescopes and one actually that you talked about is more like a symphony orchestra is a telescope called SOFIA. What is SOFIA and what makes that an orchestra?
1: SOFIA stands for the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, so S-O-F-I-A. It is a NASA-run observatory that is actually a telescope operating out of the back of a specially modified Boeing 747. So the telescope does what it sounds like. It flies up into the stratosphere, so around 45,000 feet higher than most commercial flights go. And while this telescope is in flight, it opens a rear door in the back of the plane and exposes a telescope that's specifically designed to study infrared light. So this is light that we can't see with our eyes and it's light that would normally bounce off all of the water vapor molecules in our atmosphere before getting to the ground. But by flying up into the stratosphere above most of our atmosphere's water vapor, Sophia is able to get some of the benefits of being above our atmosphere without the challenge of going all the way to space. Now what this means is that you're combining all the complexity of a world-class telescope and all the complexity of an experimental aircraft. So working at SOFIA very much is the symphony to a mountaintop telescope's garage band. And it is such a finely coordinated process between a mission director and specially trained pilots who operate SOFIA and people who are experts at the telescope and the instruments and astronomers who might come along for the observations. It's an extraordinary achievement where everybody learns their part. And then when they're assembled, you get this amazing observational experience out of it.
0: One thing you mentioned in your book is the Discovery of the cosmic microwave background, where what they thought was noise wasn't.
1: Yes. So the cosmic microwave background is sort of the leftover background hum of the universe very shortly after the Big Bang. And there were two scientists named Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, and they were busy building a radio telescope for Bell Labs. And this is a great opportunity to explain what a radio telescope is, too, because these telescopes detect, again, not the light that we see with our eyes. They detect a light that is much, much redder than what our eyes can see. Its wavelength is much longer. When you look at a radio telescope, it often looks like a satellite dish. Um, if anybody's seen the movie Contact, they see great examples of radio telescopes there. So Penzias and Wilson were trying to build a radio receiver for communication, and they wanted the receiver to be as perfect as possible. They didn't want any hum or static or background noise or any junk to get into the way of very sensitive communications. And they improved and improved and improved the detector, but there was still this faint little like in the background, and they tried everything to figure out what it was. And I know one solution that was posed was, you know, well, there are these pigeons that despite everything that we try will roost in the detector and leave behind, I think it's very delicately described as a white dielectric substance left behind by pigeons on (laughs) the radio detector. And these two physicists who went on to win a Nobel prize, carefully went out and cleaned off what was left of the pigeons and thought that that would potentially fix the hiss and nothing did. And they finally realized that they were detecting the faint background hum left over from this era shortly after the Big Bang. There were scientists who had actually predicted that this signal would be real, and Penzias and Wilson happened to detect it. And once these teams joined forces, they realized what they'd found, and it wound up being an amazing discovery, but only after they eliminated (laughs) pigeon poop as an explanation.
0: That was Dr. Emily Levesque talking about her book, The Last Stargazers, The Enduring Story of Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers. Dr. Levesque will be in town this week to talk about those stories from her book at Fisk Planetarium on the University of Colorado Boulder campus. Her presentation will be on Friday, April 8th at 7 p.m. For more information, visit the Fisk Planetarium website at Colorado.edu slash Fisk, that is spelled F I S K E. And tune in to How on Earth next week for part two of our interview with Doctor Levec. The all for this edition of how on earth this week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly joel parker our theme music was written and produced by josh cutler visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes extended interviews and you can subscribe to our podcast through itunes and follow us on facebook and twitter questions or comments call the kgnu comment line at 303-447-447 For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.